thanks. Hello, everybody. It's wonderful to see you all. Glad to be back. Uh, I'm glad the snow has still decided to not stick around. Grateful for that. Uh, well, um, it is, it is ex- I'm excited to open our text before us this week. This is one of those texts that, you know, starting in the beginning of the week, I was just like, what am I going to do with this? Lord, give me something. You know, I don't, I, sometimes people might have the uh, impression that you graduated from seminary and suddenly you just, you know all the verses of the Bible. You just get a, 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 a direct link to knowledge. Not the case. So I'm grateful for the Lord's work this week in helping me to prepare, and uh, I hope that uh, the Lord uses it. And I, I'm going to uh, uh, ask now that you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 as we take a look at these last uh, four parables of Jesus in this chapter. And there's, there's nothing quite like parables which demonstrate the expertise and wisdom of Jesus as a teacher and masterful communicator. They are indeed powerful and pithy, radically simple, yet infinitely complex. Parables also reinforce the intrinsic impact of stories. Stories are powerful things. We must not forget that. But stories are only such insofar as the listeners are given understanding. As you have seen earlier in Matthew 13, this is why Jesus taught in parables. In order to conceal truth to those who have not been given understanding. However, to those who have been given understanding, he taught in parables in order to reveal truth. Parables as a kind of story are only powerful insofar as their meaning has been properly understood. And we sort of take that for granted. Like, okay, I need to understand meaning to understand what it means, okay? But in a time where meaning and truth are categories always up for debate, we cannot take this for granted any longer. Many people fail to appreciate and understand the power of a story when they fail to learn its intended purpose. And they kind of just make it up. Alice in Wonderland becomes a story about female empowerment. The Wizard of Oz becomes a story about psychological archetypes and mental disorders. And the sad thing is, I'm not making this up either. So if this is what those with spiritually blind eyes do to stories outside of the Bible, we must have greater awareness of the necessity of spiritual sight in order to understand these stories as well. This is why I wanted to begin here today. We must remember it is not that we have merely studied and studied enough to have been able to discern the meaning of Jesus' parables. It wasn't just that I spent time this week studying God's word. It wasn't only that. For what did Jesus say? To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. It's not that we are smarter or I have some extra knowledge or we're not more special. Understanding has not been discovered. It has been given to us by God. Secrets are only learned when the one who possesses that knowledge reveals those secrets to others. Therefore, like the disciples, we must count ourselves blessed. But blessed are your eyes, brothers and sisters, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. 
Now as we include this third, this third extended teaching section in the Gospel of Matthew, let us begin with an acknowledgement of the privilege of the knowledge that we have, that we have been given. It is not because we are wise in ourselves, but because the Lord has done a work in those who are His to give us spiritual eyes and spiritual ears that can see and hear the mysteries of the kingdom hidden for the ages. In this concluding section of Jesus' third discourse in Matthew, uniquely we find ourselves in a different setting. You may notice that unlike the other discourses in Matthew, this one here in chapter 13, there's a setting and audience change halfway through. We see in verse 36, it says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him. So unlike the previous parables, in our text today, we are given a peek through the living room window, as it were, as into a private conversation between Jesus and his disciples. So today we will look at these four short parables shared in private only to the disciples. And this, this is an important detail, folks. Remember, parables are not only for the crowds in order to conceal truth. Parables are also tools for teaching but for those who have been given understanding. Those with the spiritual eyes and spiritual ears able to understand them. It is a work of the Spirit. And so, as we look at Matthew 13 through 44 through 58, we will endeavor to understand what mysteries of the kingdom these parables teach us. Why these parables were shared to the disciples and what these parables demand of us in the present. That is where we are headed today. What truths do these parables reveal to us? What is the significance of their private audience? And lastly, how do they call us to respond in obedience? So with that, let us read our text for today. So if you have not already, please open your Bibles to Matthew 13. And I ask, if you are able, that you would stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? 
Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Father, we thank you that you have given us spiritual sight and spiritual hearing to be able to understand the revelation of the mysteries of the kingdom hidden for the ages. Lord, thank you that we have been given this incredible privilege and responsibility. Father, help us now to uh, see these wonders in, in your word. Open our eyes to see them. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be working in our hearts that in response we would indeed respond in joy and willful and joyful sacrifice. Father, it is in your son's name that we pray. Amen. All right, folks. So y'all have already studied the first four of Jesus' parables given to the crowds, and we just read the second set of four parables given to the disciples in private. Concluding, of course, with Jesus' rejection in Nazareth, a further outworking of the rejection of his Messiahship by the Jewish leaders that you have already seen since chapter 12. And just like the parables earlier in the discourse, except the first, these four begin uh, very similarly. The kingdom of heaven is like. Each of these parables describes and elucidates a secret or a truth about the kingdom. It is not as if each parable describes the nature of the kingdom of heaven as a whole, but each reveals a reality concerning the nature and composition of God's kingdom. I have come to think of this like the sewing of a patchwork quilt. Each patch of the quilt is individually understood. One a checkered pattern, one a striped pattern, and so on. But as each patch is sewn together, the shape, function, and beauty of the quilt is fully observed and understood. Once all the patches are sewn and seen together, only then can the quilt be fully used and appreciated by its owner. I know, it's ridiculous that I'm using a parable to explain the use of parables. From this, I want us to see and appreciate the multifaceted nature of the kingdom of heaven. Each parable revealing a facet of what the kingdom is like. Like a cube looked at only from one angle appears to look like a square. But when we look at it from a different angle, we then realize its depth and its shape. So from parable to parable, Jesus sews together this quilt out of a patchwork of kingdom realities so that those who have been given understanding can learn what the kingdom of heaven is and is like. So what are these kingdom realities Jesus desires his disciples to understand? First, Jesus gives a pair of parables that reinforce the same idea, the hidden treasure and the valuable pearl. But of course, Jesus is not being redundant. A repetition is a useful tool to reinforce a point. 
He did the same uh, exact thing in the pair of uh, the mustard seed and the leaven, uh, parables in verses 31 through 33. But what do these two parables here in verses 44 through 46 tell us about the kingdom? Together, they demonstrate the kingdom of heaven's incomparable worth and value. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Gaining possession and entrance into the kingdom is worth every sacrifice because it is a treasure of infinite worth. The treasure of, the, of entrance into the kingdom of heaven is of so great a value that it is worth any sacrifice, any cost that we could pay. It is a no-brainer for the man who happens upon this treasure to sell everything he has because he knows that once he buys the field, the value of what he has found will be greater than whatever he's given up. The payoff is secure. It's an easy trade, folks. This isn't a gamble. You don't need to bother calculating the return on investment here. The rule of God to save us is the Christian's greatest treasure. Now, I do want to address an alternate interpretation of this and and the following parable that some of you may be familiar with. Some Bible teachers have looked at these parables, these two, and have instead understood them as Christ sacrificing all in order to secure the treasure of salvation for his people. And I think that sounds good at first, but turns out to be an unsatisfactory explanation. First of all, I think the primary reason some are inclined to think these parables speak of Christ's sacrifice is owing to the desire to avoid teaching that that salvation is gained by our own sacrifice. But I do not think seeing these parables from the believer's perspective means that they teach one must pay in order to secure salvation. That's not the point, but we will return to that in a moment. Also, But if we were able to take this as Christ purchasing salvation for his people, this would imply that the value of the treasure is worth more than that of Christ's sacrifice. And I believe that the diminishing of the value of Christ's sacrifice in this way would be outright wrong. Instead, this parable speaks of the sinner who once he has discovered the precious saving reign of Christ, in response sells all that he has, demonstrating that he values this treasure above all other treasures. This is the very same idea reflected in the words of Paul in Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, which says, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For, this, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, in order that I may gain Christ. Paul willingly sacrifices all he has in order that he might gain Christ. 
Neither the Apostle Paul nor Jesus in this parable teach that we can buy our way into the kingdom. Now, that's not the point, but, but it's that the worth of the kingdom infinitely outweighs the cost of discipleship. Now, I must freely admit that I am indebted to John Piper's exposition of this text, as his teaching on it has just indelibly shaped my understanding. So to briefly quote him on this text, the point of Matthew 13, 44 is that the kingdom of God is so valuable that losing everything on earth but getting the kingdom is a happy trade. Or to be more personal and specific, we can lose everything with joy if we gain Christ. And so we see that it is in his joy that the man sacrifices everything he owns. It isn't a burden. It isn't a sacrifice full of fear and trepidation. Why? Well, because it isn't a risk. For example, if we could go back in time, about 10 years or so, knowing what we know now, how easy would it be for you to put your life savings down on a few key stocks? 1,000 shares of Amazon here, 2,000 shares of Tesla there, and how about another 500 shares of Google? Even if we drained our accounts, we would be laughing our way to the bank. But we do not possess this kind of clairvoyance regarding the uncertain future of the stock market. But you know what we do know for sure? You know what we do know for sure? Anything can be joyfully sacrificed in view of the surpassing worth of Christ. But if we know this to be true, why do we cling to so tightly to lesser treasures? Why do we cling so tightly to lesser treasures? I think the second parable helps us answer that question. You see, the parallel parables, that's a tongue twister, the parallel parables, it is in their differences that we understand how they supplement each other. The first key difference we see is that the merchant in verse 45 is searching for pearls. He's looking for them. This is different from the man who just stumbles upon a treasure in a field. He's not looking for it. Now, it is possible that this distinction even reflects the reality there, that there are some who are in search for a treasure like the kingdom, and others who, when they encounter it, recognize its worth. Just as there were some Jews of Jesus' day who were waiting with expectant longing for the Messiah, while others were not. But we also see that in the parable of the valuable pearl, the merchant, he makes an even trade. Upon finding the one great pearl... All his other pearls that he's ever found are able to, 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 together to purchase the pearl of great value. As opposed to the hidden treasure, which surpasses the value of everything sold to buy the field. The merchant pays full price. Now what are these pearls then? Now, Don Carson helps us in this. First affirming that Jesus is not teaching that one could buy the kingdom. Of course not. Instead, he suggests that like the merchant whose life has been bound up in the pursuit 
of fine pearls. The disciples' lives are given to the pursuit of the pearls of religious achievement and Jewish heritage. But these pearls are easily exchanged when confronted with the great value of the kingdom. And so I I put it to you, what pearls do you so tightly cling to? What treasure are you holding on to instead of pursuing the kingdom? Is it your family? Is it your status or comfortability? Is it the elusive security of finances or a career? Is it your own desire to prove yourself to uh, to God, attempting to earn His favor? Whatever it is, they they are sacrifices that can be made with joy in view of the surpassing worth of entrance into Christ's kingdom, the benefits of which are manifold and great. Reconciled relationship with God, freedom from the crushing burden of sin, eternal joy in a redeemed world under the rule of a perfect king, just to name a few. And in the next parable, we learn that our entrance into the kingdom also secures for us escaping the just judgment of God against all unrighteousness. Again, uh, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here Jesus again supplies for the disciples the interpretation of this parable. Now upon reading it this week, my first question was, how is this parable any different from the parable of the wheat and the tares? I mean, certainly Jesus isn't being redundant, but what is this parable highlighting for his disciples that supplements what he previously taught? Hmm. Well, the outcome is the same. Jesus even repeating verbatim verse 42 in verse 50. The focus in the parable of the wheat and the tares is the circumstances within the kingdom during the present age. However, the more narrow focus of the parable of the net is on what will be at the last judgment. Now this is a reminder for the disciples that the sorting out of the good and the bad fish, the righteous and the wicked, will only occur at the end of the age. I would even suggest to you that Jesus places this parable here to supplement the realities of the kingdom taught in verses 43 through 46. And I think he does so for two reasons. One is something that I think we neglect because we often just find it uncomfortable. It is out of fashion and frowned upon in our day to talk about the reality of coming judgment against sin as a reason or as a motivator for turning to Christ in salvation. Now the abuse of this as a scare tactic by what is often labeled uh, fire and brimstone kind of preaching is often problematic. That's true. But even though the reality of eternity in hell has been taught improperly does not mean it shouldn't be taught at all. 
we must reckon with the fact that Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. And by no means should we suggest that it is wrong for Jesus to properly utilize the reality of coming judgment as a teaching tool that is used well and appropriately. Avoiding punishment in hell is something that should motivate sinners towards repentance and faith. But it must not be our only motivation, or even our primary motivation for that matter. For what has Jesus already taught should be the primary motive for the joyful sacrificial pursuit of the kingdom? The exceedingly great worth of the kingdom. But the reality of the separation of the good and the bad fish will only occur when they are caught together in the net and sorted out in the final judgment. It is right to remember this as a supplementary motivation that it is. But there is still another reason why I believe Jesus is reminding his disciples of this here. And it also has to do with what he has already taught them. Is a person's joy a good indicator of the genuineness of their faith in Christ? Can you properly assess that someone is saved based upon their joy? According to Jesus, the answer is no. Joy alone is not all the evidence needed to properly assess the genuineness of one's faith. We can see this when we look back at the explanation of the parable of the sower. Look back at verse 20 with me. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Jesus does not say here that, joy, that the joy is somehow ingenuine, but that there are some people who hear the gospel and respond joyfully. By all accounts on the surface, there seems to be genuine joy and faith in the gospel. But what does it say in verse 21? Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. How has Jesus described the pursuit of entrance into the kingdom? As one who joyfully sacrifices everything. But the, mat- but the fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, is that there are many who will by all appearances sacrifice a great deal and may even do so out of apparent joy who will not have a share in the kingdom. There are many who are given to the, to the deception that a good attitude will get them in heaven. There are many more still who sacrifice much because they believe that entrance into the kingdom can be earned or purchased. And so again, Jesus reminds his disciples that the sorting of the righteous and the wicked will only occur after the net is cast and drug in. Now, after the explanation of the parable of the net, Jesus asks his disciples in verse 51 if they have understood all these things. These things likely referring to all that he has taught them in this discourse. I found it interesting as I was studying this text 
that many have tried to call into question the honesty of the disciples' response here. But we should have no reason to doubt that they did understand. At least they understood the basics. But I think this verse actually points back to where we started. I mean, I, 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 I graduated from seminary, so I know great and wise things that most people don't know, that verse 50, uh, 51 and 52 come after verses 1 through 50. The disciples are able to respond in the affirmative, not because of their own intelligence, but because of the understanding that has been given to them. And it is because they do truly understand that Jesus shares with them one more final parable. Jesus says in verse 52, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Now admittedly, this is a bit of an odd text. But when we remember the broader context, what has come before, and we remember the audience, the meaning of it becomes clear. First, the, ma- the parable of the master of the house, or uh, the parable of the homeowner, to use more modern language, uh, begins differently than the others. It does not begin the kingdom of heaven is like. The comparison is more specific. Jesus is not likening a homeowner to the kingdom, but a homeowner to a scribe who is trained for the kingdom. So what on earth does that mean? What does Jesus mean by scribes trained for the kingdom? Now let's, let's break this down bit by bit. We're going to take it you know, a little bit at a time. We're going to get into the nitty gritty here. So don't get lost in the weeds, folks. Keep your head above water. All right. Okay, so a scribe was more than just someone who wrote stuff down. That's first. Uh, a scribe was more than just someone who wrote stuff down. I think that's what we would normally think of the word scribe, somebody who copies or, uh, or writes down what someone says. Maybe we think of transcribing or transcription. Uh, but scribes were primarily not people who just wrote things down. The scribes were experts of the, in the law of Moses and of the oral law, the traditions of the Pharisees. The scribes were actually legal scholars. So what Jesus is referring to here is not to scribes as people that wrote, but as people that taught. Scribes were primarily interpreters of the law. They were teachers. This is why some of your Bibles may have translated this as, therefore every teacher of the law, so as to clarify this. So what then does Jesus mean by teachers of the law who are trained for the kingdom? Now significantly, significantly, the word in the original language translated as who has been trained is the Greek word mafetuo, which is the verb meaning to make disciples or to be discipled. Just as we use the word disciple both as a noun and a verb, the Greek language uses it as a noun and a verb. Uh, we would say Jesus had many disciples, and Jesus discipled many people. 
So this word, mathetuo, is the same word we see at the end of Matthew in the Great Commission, when Jesus says, go, make disciples of all nations. Go, mathetuo, the nations. So it's the same word, we, which actually clarifies what this training for the kingdom really refers to. It refers to the reality of discipleship. Are you, are you following with me here? You're tracking with me? No one got lost in the weeds yet? Okay. So we might rephrase this verse. Every teacher of the law who has been discipled for the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner. Every teacher of the law who has been discipled for the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner. But from this, we actually notice what is in view here is a person who is trained or discipled for the use of God's kingdom. And those who are useful for God's kingdom are not just discipled for it, but disciples of it. Those who are useful for God's kingdom are not just discipled for it, but therefore must be disciples of it. Those who are Jesus' disciples are scribes trained for the kingdom. After all, who is Jesus talking to here? Who is the audience? He has been speaking to his disciples, to those who have been given understanding, those who have been given spiritual eyes and spiritual ears, those to whom the secrets of the kingdom have been revealed. And after having affirmed their understanding of what has been hidden since the foundation of the world, Jesus informs them of their and our responsibility. Those who are trained for the kingdom, who are thus disciples of the kingdom, are like a homeowner who shares out of his treasure what is new and what is old. All who have been given understanding are given a responsibility owing to what has been given to them. The inestimable privilege that is the revelation of the mysteries of the kingdom does not come without a job description. Those who have been taught, teach. Those who have been trained, train. Those who have been discipled, make disciples. For if you are a disciple of Christ, you too have been given the fathomless honor of learning and understanding and therefore teaching others the revealed mysteries of God. Do you realize that, brothers and sisters? Do you realize that? You're not off the hook, folks. You have a responsibility. What did Jesus say in verse 17? Many prophets and righteous people longed to see. They longed to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. You have access to this kind of divine revelation. You are held accountable for what you do with it. 
We have a job to do, brothers and sisters. But this responsibility is also a wondrous, joy-filled, and joy-fueled privilege. For it is out of the treasure or storeroom of our hearts that we reveal truths of the kingdom, both new and old. Not to ogle at ourselves, but to share with others as a homeowner shares with his guests. We get to take the good stuff out of the pantry closet, folks. The stuff you've been saving for a rainy day, we get to share out of the abundance in the, of, in the storeroom of our hearts into a world that is starving for want of a veritable word of truth, we get to share the rich delicacies of the kingdom of God. Like warm, hot chocolate after a walk in the snow is the revelation of the saving rule of Christ to the frostbitten heart. This is our privilege and joy as those who are trained for the good use of the kingdom of our Savior. If only we were given a warm reception. But why should servants expect it to be any different than it was for their master? In these final verses of chapter 13, a, a short hinge of transition between the discourse section into the next narrative section, Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth. And it is here where we see a further outworking of all that we have seen so far in chapters 12 and 13. Jesus teaches in the synagogue, but to those who have eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. And they reject him. The questions they ask here are not asked in genuine curiosity, but are asked in settled judgment meant to insult and to deride. And to clarify, verse 58, this is not meant to suggest that belief is a necessary pretext for miracles, as earlier stories in Matthew demonstrate. But as Jesus declared in chapter 12, because of their unbelief in their rejection of him as Messiah, they would not see more signs. Now, hilariously, the Nazarenes don't deny Jesus' wisdom and mighty works. You see that in verse 54? They, they, they don't deny it. They, they see his wisdom. They, they, it's evident to them. But coming face to face with the reality of, Jesus, of the wisdom of Jesus' teaching and the power in his previous re- miracles, rather than responding with joy, they were offended by him and rejected what he taught them. And we are meant to pick up the irony in this. Where ought one receive the warmest reception? At home. He should be the hometown hero. But Jesus goes back home, and in their estimation, he cannot rise above the lowly status of a carpenter's son. Jesus has already been rejected by the Jewish leaders, those most openly antagonistic to him. But now he is criticized and rejected by those closest to him, to his, by his family and his hometown friends. Again, should we expect it to be any different for us? Now, thank the Lord, by his mercy, it very well might be different for us. 
But often it is not. Often it is not. Even and often especially to those closest to us, sharing the mysteries of the kingdom with our families and closest friends is often met with criticism and rejection. And, and that is a painful thing. It truly it is. But what have we seen in our text today? That even this can be a sacrifice made with joy in the worthy pursuit of the kingdom. We are able to endure rejection when we remember that all sacrifices and sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the worth that is entrance into the kingdom of God. The worthy pursuit of the kingdom is most assuredly worth it. But in this sacrificial pursuit, we must also remember the great responsibility and privilege we have as those who are discipled for the kingdom's use. And this is done even in view of coming judgment that those who reject the Son have no share in His kingdom and are thrown into the fire. And so all the more, let us share the treasures of truth from the storehouses of our hearts. This is the greatest privilege and joy of every disciple to reveal what has been revealed to them and to teach what has been taught to them. It requires you to consider all other pearls, all other treasures, worthless by comparison. It requires the exchange of all you would have to gain Christ instead. But the worthy pursuit of the kingdom is most assuredly worth it. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would drive this deep into our hearts, that we would look at the paltry treasures of this world, even the good things you had given us, and like Paul, count them as rubbish in order that we might gain Christ. Father, he is indeed our greatest treasure. Forgive us when we, when we do not view him as such and pursue lesser things and tightly cling on to pearls of lesser value. Father, help us to understand our responsibility and to take up the charge as those who are scribes trained for use in the kingdom. Lord, we are your disciples and we desire to be faithful disciples who disciple others. I pray that for these brothers and sisters here that they would hear this call, this word of Christ, and that they would see the privilege and the joy they have to take the kingdom realities that they have been given the understanding of and earnestly desire to share that with as many as they can. It is a beautiful thing. Lord, help us to be so full of joy in this that we would look at all of our sacrifice as little by comparison. It's hard and it's, it's painful. Sacrifice is not easy. But Lord, we know it can be made when we have our gaze fixed on the treasure of Jesus. Lord, let him ever be before our eyes and the pursuit of our lives. Give us greater understanding and greater joy and love for those around us. It's in your sons in that I pray. Amen.
Please stand as we sing. I found a treasure that can't be taken. I found a well that won't run dry. Oh, worldly pleasure be now forsaken. Behold what love, what life is mine. Good endless
song. I hadn't heard that one before. Perfect ending. Great. The charge is this, folks. Today we conclude the third extended teaching section in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus teaches in parables in order to conceal the truth to those who have not been given understanding, but to reveal truth to those who have. In our text today, Jesus delivers four short parables in private to his disciples. From the first two, we learn of the exceedingly great worth of the kingdom, the pursuit of which is indeed worth every sacrifice. This is supplemented with a view towards the final judgment when the righteous and the wicked will indeed be separated. And having been given this understanding, like the disciples, we too are given the responsibility and privilege to share our, out of our treasury of truth with others. Like Jesus, when we are criticized and rejected, even by those closest to us, we must remember that the worthy pursuit of the kingdom is most assuredly worth it. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Go serve your king and go seek his kingdom. Have a good week.